This morning, we're going to start a four-week series on the book of James, and there's a video that really captures James chapter 2, and it's the animated movie Shrek. Any Shrek lovers here? Okay. Uh, Shrek celebrates the worth of society's undervalued people. It revolves around a rude ogre named Shrek who finds a friend in a talking, talking donkey. That's what my wife thinks she married sometimes, a talking donkey. And Shrek unexpectedly falls in love with a princess whom he rescues from imprisonment in a castle. And this fairy tale spoof emphasizes how humans place too much importance on outward appearances. Now, there's a scene where after freeing the princess from the castle, Shrek and Donkey escort her back to the village as they were commanded to do. Because the journey is so long, they actually take a night to rest for the longest stretch of the journey. And they're sitting around the campfire, and Donkey talks to Shrek about what life will be like once they return to Shrek's home. His home in the humble swamp. Now watch this clip as they dream about what life will be like back at the swamp. Hey, Shrek, what are we going to do when we get out of swamp anyway? Our swamp? You know, when we're through rescuing the princess and all that stuff. We? Donkey, there's no we. There's no our. There's just me and my swamp. And the first thing I'm going to do is build a 10-foot wall around my land. You cut me deep, Shrek. You cut me real deep just now. You know what I think? I think this whole wall thing is just a way to keep somebody out. No. Do you think? Are you hiding something? Never mind, donkey. Oh, this is another one of those onion things, isn't it? No, this is one of those drop it and leave it alone things. Why don't you want to talk about it? Why do you want to talk about it? Why are you blocking I'm not blocking. Oh, yes, you are. Donkey, I'm warning you. Who are you trying to keep out? Just tell me that, Shrek. Who? Everyone, okay? Oh, now we're getting somewhere. Oh, for the love of Pete. Hey, what's your problem, Shrek? What you got against the whole world anyway? Huh? Look, I'm not the one with the problem, okay? It's the world that seems to have a problem with me. People take one look at me and go, Ah, help, run! A big, stupid, ugly ogre. They judge me before they even know me. That's why I'm better off alone. You know what? When we met, I didn't think he was just a big, stupid, ugly ogre. Yeah, I know. They judge me before they even know me. Shrek realizes someone has looked beyond his outward appearance and has accepted him, and that's a donkey. That sums up what's happening in James chapter 2. They judge me before they even know me. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, and let's just unpack this this morning. In this text, James wants us to think about how we treat people, particularly how we allow a person's appearance or social status to influence our treatment of them. And now here's what's interesting about James. From the very beginning, he assumes this is how all people live. We make judgments of people before we get to know them. We all do it. 
And yet the Bible also says this. It says that no, no diff, there's no difference to God, whether you're young or old, highly educated or not, famous or unknown. God wants everyone to know him and come to know his love, which is why the church is to share the good news with the whole world. God doesn't love you according to the color of your skin. He doesn't love you because of the clothes on your body. He doesn't judge like that. He's not impressed by the car you drive, the fashion you wear, or if you have more degrees than a thermometer. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 19.7, his word tells us this. With the Lord our God, there is no injustice, catch this, or partiality. Partiality. That word partiality, it means favoritism, treating people differently in a way that is unfair. Now, of course, people are different. That's part of the genius of God's creativity that nobody is the same. And yet the Lord deals with us all as individuals like a good parent loves each child. Just the same, but doesn't treat them all the same because you know their differences. Well, God is the same way. He doesn't play favorites. But the church, the church James is writing to is showing favoritism among its believers. Uh, look at James chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, My brothers and sisters, now notice how he opens this, believers. Right there, he's speaking to Christians. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. This word favoritism, it's literally a, a Greek word that means face taker. Now, this is interesting. Catch this picture, face taking. It's not something that we do any longer. But face taking was a common practice in the ancient world. Whenever you came, met a king or whenever you crossed paths with someone that was a high rank in society... If you were a common, ordinary person, you would bow your face to the ground and you didn't dare look at the king in the eye. And while your face was bowed to the ground, if the king disproved of you, they would walk right past. They would ignore you. But if the king was approving of you, he would take your face with his hand and he would lift your face to look him in the eye. And at that point, you knew you were approved by the king. You see, face-taking was a sign of acceptance. And that's where this word for favoritism in verse 1 comes from. It means to take hold of the face. Now, to really get the picture here, imagine church happening this morning when people walked in. And let's, let's say that we were in this practice. People in the church, there would be those of high status where the rest of us would bow our heads when we came into their presence. Can you imagine walking into a church, walking into a church where everyone bows their head for just a small percentage of the people? And let, let, let's just say, let's just say I'm, I'm the, the, the rich person in this text. Uh, I'm going to call on my wife because I don't want to get in trouble with anybody else, but I'm still going to get in trouble probably. Can you come here for a second, Tammy? I got to live with you. That's true. All right. Let's say that church is beginning and I'm the rich person and I'm walking into church. Tammy sees me because of my status. All of a sudden, she bows her head. Now, I've got two choices. Yeah, this is not how it is at home. I'm just telling you right now. I got two choices when I see her bow her head in deferment to me. 
I will either disprove of her, and I'll see her, and I'll just walk by, and then you as the congregation are watching this, and what do you immediately know? She doesn't have Troy's approval. As a church, you're like, whoa. Or I approve of her, and I take her chin, and I lift it up, and we make eye contact. Now, here's a thank you. My wife, she did wonderful. Can you imagine what it would be like to attend a church like that? In fact, all you need to think about is junior high. The haves and the have-nots. You remember that feeling? Well, I'm old enough now where I've done enough counseling with people to realize that there are many things that people struggle with in their 40s and 50s that are still tied to those teenage years because the have-nots were disapproved of. I still remember, uh, you've heard me tell this story before, and I'm going to get mocked for it again, and that's okay. But I was in junior high, and I was a have-not. I was a have-not. We, Mom and Dad, uh, they put us in a private school. To get into that private school, they had to get scholarship because they couldn't afford it. And it got too expensive. And Mom and Dad, I'm entering eighth grade, and Mom and Dad had made the decision that I needed to go back to the public school. Well, here was the issue. Going to the Christian school I went to, this was back in the 1970s, okay, a while ago, a long time ago, 1970s, and there was a dress code at the Christian school. You had to wear dress slacks and dress shirts. Well, when I went to the public school, guess who had no blue jeans? I was a have-not. Mom and dad could not afford... Now, my mom denies this, but my siblings all vouch for this. I was a have-not. And have you ever realized what we're willing to do to look like we have? Have you ever noticed what we're willing to do to try to fit in with the haves? I was so desperate to fit in. I had no jeans. So you know what I did? My sister had a pair of jeans that were too long for her. I wore her jeans to school to try as hard as I could to be a haves. You know, it's amazing how such a simple thing sticks with you. Can you imagine if this is how the church functioned? There are the haves and the have-nots. Those who are approved, those are who are disapproved of. That's happening in this church right here. In fact, as this all takes place, James says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, no! That favoritism should not happen in the church because favoritism is incompatible with being a Christian. It's incompatible with being a Christian. And to make sure the church doesn't miss his point, look what he does in verses 2 to th- two through 4. He literally talks about something that happened in church one Sunday. Here's how I would describe it. As the worship service was getting started, there were two people who walked in the back doors of the, of the church service. One of them clearly had a bunch of money. And all you had to do was look at his expensive clothing, his suit, his tie, and his high-dollar haircut, and you could almost smell money about him. But then there was a second person, obviously a poor person. He walked in the back door, and he was wearing dirty clothing. 
It was still his best, but it was dirty. It was torn. It was sewed together in places, trying to hold it together. He hadn't had a haircut in months. And he probably smelled more like moldy cheese than money. You see, since it wasn't a very big church, everyone could see what happened. Everyone watched the minister and the elders make a big deal about the rich man. They enthusiastically greeted him. They bowed their faces before him, and they gave him a bulletin, and they showed him the best seat in the sanctuary, asking people who were already sitting there to find a different seat. Then, when the poor man walked in the church, even though there were open seats by the rich man, the poor man was told that there wasn't enough room in the sanctuary, so the elders asked him to please stand in the corner at the back of the church. And once the poor man was in the corner, other church members seemed to try and hide the poor man from the rich man's view. So the rich man wouldn't think less of the small congregation because they let people into worship like the poor man. Everyone saw what happened at church that Sunday as there was a division between the haves and the have-nots. Have nots. Now, here's what's so fascinating about what happened in the church that day. What happened in worship at the church that Sunday is what people would have experienced at the temple before they became Christians. Isn't that interesting? If you were to approach the temple, there were various courts and there were signs posted instructing people on who was allowed in and who was to stay out. It was, it was divided up. The people, as they headed into the temple, they were divided up based on nationality, Jew and Gentile. They were divided up based on gender. Men go closer, women stay behind. They were divided up by race. There was a VIP section, a general seating section, and then a section for the marginal people. But you couldn't get to the temple in Jerusalem, so maybe you went to the local synagogue instead. And you went to the synagogue, and guess what? It wasn't any better there. Women sat on one side, men on the other side, and to make sure their paths didn't cross, there was a curtain that divided the sanctuary. Seating in the synagogue was determined by a person's rank and status in society. The higher up you were in your ranking, the more honorable seat you were given. Well, after hearing the church of Jesus was having worship services the way that the temple and the synagogue did, James walked to his writing desk, picked up a pen, and he started to write this letter of protest to the church. My brothers in our glorious Lord Jesus, don't show favoritism. When you welcome the rich and you shun the poor, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is so interesting. After describing what was happening in the church, James gives immediate application by asking a question in verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And the answer is obviously yes, because everybody saw it. In fact, look at verse 4 for a moment. Do you see the three accusations in that one verse? What are they? First one is they were dividing people. Uh, NIV says discriminating. New American Standard says making distinctions. Second thing they did, they made themselves 
Judges. Interesting word, judges. The only way time that it's really used in a positive sense is in the sense in which God is judge. You get what they're doing? They are putting themselves in the role and the position of God to make a judgment about the heart. And finally, look at their motive. The motive behind their actions, it says, was evil. Evil rather than biblical. Now catch the irony here. This church in James chapter 2 had the misbelief that one's outward appearance was an indicator of the quality of a person's inner life with God. Isn't that interesting? Here's why that's so interesting. You know, no matter how long the church has been in existence, there has been a true characteristic that has lasted for thousands of years, and it's this. Historically, the church has been a blue-collar people. Historically, the church has been a blue-collar people. Why is that? Think of Jesus' teachings when it came to the rich. How difficult is it for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God? It's about as difficult as a camel going through what? The eye of a needle. Well, why is that? Is God opposed to wealth? No. God is not opposed to wealth. But for faith to exist, there is this sense of needing to recognize, I am, I am dependent on another. That's why it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for them to depend on somebody else. Why? Because they got it all. And that's why historically the church has been a blue-collar people because it's easier for people with very little to have a greater dependence on God. So this isn't a judgment of that, that the rich are bad and the poor are more honest. No, no, no. It's really showing who it is that has an easier time trusting God. And it's the poor. It's the have-nots who historically have had an easier time. And so as this is all taking place, catch what's happening. If the church is acting like this, who is, if the rich men are getting the full attention, what is it telling those who are without? What is it telling the have-nots? How do they think God perceives them? He doesn't care. And yet, have you noticed how in Scripture, whether it's the widow, whether it's the orphan, whether it's the sick, whether it's the poor, whether it's women, whether it's the outcasts, how Jesus' heart has always been for those who are the have-nots. I'm very thankful because I fit that quite well. The church historically has been a blue-collar community. By dividing people as this church was doing, the church showed the content of their heart was evil thinking because they considered the poor to be less a person because of their appearance. Now, having reminded the church of what they have done, James is now going to draw a contrast between the church's attitude and God's attitude in verses 5 to 7. Look at verses 5 to 7. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, here's the contrast. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? There it is. Why has God chosen the poor? Because they are rich in faith. 
They know what it's like to live in dependence. Because you were, as if you were a poor person in this day and age, you were dependent on the middle class and those higher. Why? Because as you passed their grain field, they were commanded by the law of God to leave grain on the edges. For what purpose? So the widows, the poor, and the orphans could have something to eat. They learned how to live in dependence on others. And that's why it says they are rich in faith. They know what it's like to live a life of dependence. And follow James' logic here. If God wasn't stingy with the gospel based on race, economic status, sex, whatever external factor humanity may use, why is the church being stingy? Think about it. By rejecting the poor, the church rejected those that God chose. Let that sink in for a moment. By rejecting the poor, the church rejected those that God chose. Instead of following God's example, what was the church doing? Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor. God chose the poor man to be a disciple of Jesus, and the church hid him in the back corner. The church dishonored the poor man. The church shamed the poor man. In verse 6, James turns up the heat even more with questions. Look at these questions he's asked. he asks. Whew. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, we often miss, miss what's happening here. Please don't hear James say that if you are well-to-do, shame on you. That's not what he's saying. He is specifically addressing what the rich people were doing in this congregation. And it's startling. That rich, You know that rich man that the elders just escorted to the front of the church and made a big to-do about? That same rich man was using false accusations to sue some of the elders in court in order to extort more money from them. He wanted to become richer at the elders' expense. So he's taking them to court. That rich man was also suing the children's Sunday school teacher. The rich man tried to bribe the Sunday school teacher to lie to the police about a member in the community that he wanted to get in trouble. And the Sunday school teacher, who was poor, she didn't lie because it was against her Christian beliefs. So the rich man trumped up charges to get her put in jail. Isn't that odd? The rich man they are giving preferential treatment to is persecuting and demeaning the Christians in the church that he is worshiping with on that particular Sunday morning. It's crazy. But after making this contrast, James then condemns what the church has done, beginning in verse 8. Look what it says. If you really keep the royal law, this Right here, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, this is the key that unlocks the whole passage. In fact, I'd encourage you to, to underline that phrase, royal law. What's the royal law? The text tells us what the royal law is. It says this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now think of when this law was first given. Back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God said, here is a law, a binding law, a royal law made by the king of kings. And James is pointing to the authority behind the command. God. 
He points to that authority so the church is bound to that command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the royal law is a law that's made by God, and if the church were obeying that law, there would be no favoritism shown in Christian worship. Why? Because if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you'll wind up loving everybody the way you love yourself. Hear that again. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you'll wind up loving everybody the same way that you love yourself. Here's what I love about James chapter 2. I don't care where you are in the current political climate of American culture. This text takes both sides to task. This text says both sides are guilty. Why? Because we're not treating everyone as we treat ourselves. I mean, catch the point. Since you love yourself so much, and you do, I mean, it's as simple as this. Whose mouth did you feed this morning? Now, unless you're a mother of little children, it, primarily it was yours. Whose face do you wash? Whose hair do you comb? Whose body do you dress? Whose looks are you concerned about when you leave the house? Whose career occupies your mind? Who are you trying to make comfortable? Who are you trying to make happy? Oh, this is easy. It's me, 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 me. I take care of myself. You take care of yourself. How do you know you take care of yourself? You meet your needs, right? I woke up this morning. I was hungry. Michaela, what I have for breakfast? Waffles. I was hungry. I took care of myself. You see, when you learn to occupy yourself with everyone else in the same way you're occupied with yourself, favoritism will have no place in your life. Because no matter whether a person is poor or rich, educated or uneducated, ignorant or intelligent, no matter whether a person looks good or doesn't look good, whether they are high class or low class, if you treat them all the same way you treat yourself, you will treat everyone with equal value, right? And James just isn't saying, be nice. That's not what he's saying. I wish it was that easy. Just be nice to everyone. But this, law, this royal law James is talking about, it's a reference to biblical love. Not cultural love, biblical love. A love that is deeper than being nice. You see, love that is biblical is love that meets needs. Love that is biblical is love that meets needs. When the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, it means to love based on your neighbor's needs. Meet your neighbor's need the same way you meet your own needs. And that's the royal law. A need-oriented love for your neighbor. Now look how James ends. Now please understand, in this context, he is speaking to the church. What he's saying is, we got to love each other as our neighbors. We got to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We got to take care of one another's needs in the church as we take care of our own needs. That's where it begins. Okay, I want to make that focus very clear. But look how James ends in verse, verse 8. If you do this, if you meet needs, no matter who the people are, here it is, you are doing right or you're doing well. This word well, it means doing excellently. You're doing excellently. This is God's will. Why? 
Why does God want us to live generously towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? Why does God want us to love in meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because that's what God does. That's what, I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care how much or how little you have. Here's what you've got to understand. Everything that all of us has, we had very little to do with it. Apart from God's grace, God gave it to us. It's His. Everything. It's His. And He met your needs before you even asked. Why is the church to be generous in meeting the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ? Because that is when we look most like God. Boy, I hope you're with me. This is, there's so much meat in this text. We're almost done, so hang in there. Let's look at verse 9. Now, when you're, when you're studying Scripture, pay attention to words. And one word you always want to pay attention to is but. Look how verse 9 opens. But. Uh-oh. That word but tells us there's an exception coming. There were people in the church who were living contrary to the royal law. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now notice how the favoritism they show have shown, it wasn't a mistake. The Greek grammar shows that the favoritism was a continuous habit. They continually showed favoritism. It was their intent to show favoritism, which means what? It means they were continually, habitually breaking God's law, which made them transgressors, meaning they'd gone too far. They fell short of God's expectations. Now, some of you may be thinking meeting the needs of others in the church is not really that big of a deal. If, if I don't do that all the time or if I don't do that regularly, it's okay. But look what James explains in verse 10. He begins to explain why it is a big deal when we fail to meet people's needs in the body of Christ. He says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of what? Breaking all of it. Now to understand what's happening in verse 10, church, you have to think like a Jew. Don't think like an American when it comes to the law. Here, here's how we as Americans think. Uh, you've probably been wondering, why is this broom up here? I want this broom to represent the law, the Old Testament. Now, if you were to count, uh, there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. So let's pretend that on this, on this broom right here, that there are 613 little bristles. 613, and each one represents one of the commands in the Old Testament. See, how we tend to think of the law as Americans, we think if I break just one law, if I just break one little tassel, you know what? It's only one. There are 612 that I didn't break. I'm okay, and guess what? We just keep using the broom, right? No big deal. Sure, I broke one, but God, I've honored the other 612. We're good, right? That's how we think about the law. But we got to think about the law the way the Jews did. And James does that. He says, if you break one law, you break all of it. Now, what's that look like? I didn't want to do this because I was afraid to get hurt. But I want you to imagine that right here is a big pane of glass. Big pane of glass. 
okay? And that I have a hammer, and I'm going to hit that pane of glass just once, as hard as I can, just once. If I hit it as hard as I can once, what's going to happen to that pane of glass? <sighs> Shatter all over the place. That's the point that James is making. To break the whole law, you just have to break one. And in this case, what's that law? The law of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's what you may be asking. But Troy, why is it a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that one mistake ruins the whole thing? Where over here, I like this much easier because then I can keep tabs. As long as I do more good than I do bad, I'm okay. But that's not how the Bible views the law. The Bible says if you break one, you've shattered the law. Well, what's that mean? You are a sinner worthy of judgment. That's how serious it is. But why does one law make a difference? Again, you got to think as a Jew. As Americans, we think, but it's just one little rule. But here's what the Jews always understood and that we've got to understand. Remember those 613 commands? Where did they come from? I mean, yes, you could say God, sure. But every one of those laws reflected a character aspect of God himself. Hello. The source of the law is a person. It's the character of God. All 613 laws, they represent who God is. And so to break just one, you totally separate yourself from God. That's why we need Jesus. You didn't just make an oops, I made a boo-boo. You shattered the window. You see what James is saying now? And what James is saying in this whole text right here is if you want to judge and determine the health of your faith in Jesus Christ, how are you caring for the needs within the church? If you're not, that's a poor, poor faith. If you are, there is true faith in us. In fact, here's, here's how we could look at it. Uh, I'm going to hurry up here, gang. Let's say I'm sitting at the coffee shop, and as I'm sitting there, all of a sudden, I see George drive up. And George is in his Mercedes, and he steps out of the car, and he has on Cole Haan shoes and this nice suit with a tie. And as he's walking into the coffee shop, he, he has his Apple computer in his briefcase, and he's just dressed for the dressed to the hilt, and I see George come in, and we go to church together, and I say, hey, George, come over here. I'd like to buy you a cup of coffee. And George and I sit down, and we, we chat over our coffee together. And as we're sitting there, here comes, here comes Joe. Joe pulls into the parking lot in a 1972 Ford that's rusted, big holes on the side. It's blue, but you see more orange rust than you see blue. And when, jo when Joe gets out of the truck, he, he has his overalls on. And those overalls, he's been farming that morning. He's been up since 4.30. There's manure on his boots. We go to church with Joe as well. And Joe walks in the coffee shop, and I see Joe, and Joe comes over to say hi. And I tell Joe, hey, Joe, uh, can you wait over there for me? If I have time, I'll come by and say hi. What's that tell you about my faith? That's James' point. 
That's James' point. In fact, look what he says, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Now notice that, a brother or sister, it's talking within the church primarily. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but they do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, What's the condition of the faith? Dead. These verses are not a contrast between faith and works. It's not a contrast between trusting Jesus for your salvation and working to earn your salvation. That's not what James is talking about. This is a contrast between true faith and false faith. You see, anyone can say they believe in Jesus. Anyone. James tells us in James chapter 2, verse 9, who else believes in Jesus? Demons. See, it's not simply believing in Jesus. True faith, true faith is proved genuine and real because it produces the good works of generosity. False faith is proved dead because it lacks generosity. Let me, let me just say this, and then we'll wrap up. Here's a formula I want to give you. Faith, you can write this down, it's short. Faith equals salvation plus works. Faith equals salvation plus works. Now, before you jump all over that, let me explain it. Though our works do not contribute to our salvation, our works are evidence of our salvation. Do you hear the difference? We don't earn our salvations because of what we do, but it's proof that we have salvation because we're generous, because we care for others. We're saved by faith alone, but once we're saved, that faith doesn't remain alone. Faith doesn't stay by itself. When Jesus saves us, He intends to transform us. He intends for the transformation to be holistic. He not only wants it to affect our heads and our thinking, He wants it to affect our hearts in how we love, and He wants it to affect our hands in what we do. Faith equals salvation plus works. And that's the challenge that James 2 leaves us to consider. Has your faith in Christ changed how you love your neighbor in the church? Or are you inclined to do good for others only if It brings you personal benefit. If your service to others is tied to how you benefit from it, here's what you need to pray for this morning. Ask God to give you true saving faith because your faith is dead. But if you meet the needs of others the way you meet your own needs, ask God to help you increase the good works you are doing. Generosity reveals a strong faith because it imitates Church, it imitates the generosity of Jesus. Jesus was a poor man from everything that we can see. He was supported by women primarily. He didn't have much. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. And yet if there's one quality about Jesus that we can't deny, he was so generous. Right? Generosity is evidence that there's a saving faith 
in us. And here's the final thing. May our collective generosity as a church reveal to people that true faith is lived out here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what tough words, what challenging words. But Lord, thank you for the grace you have to tell us the truth, to tell us the truth so that we know what it is we need to change in our own lives. Father, I just ask that you help us to have this faith that James talks about because then that's how we become a vibrant church. We love each other regardless of status, regardless of position. We love each other. We love the way God loves. Lord, for some of us, we've been practicing this for decades. But for others of us, it's going to be a new journey. We got a lot to process with the Holy Spirit. But Lord, help us. Help us to look like Jesus in our generosity. In Jesus' name, amen.